Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 40. Uh, this week, we have the whole gang. We have myself, Gladys, Mark, and Sarah. We also have a guest, Julie Kosmano, who's here to talk to us about incident response with Jupyter Notebooks. But before we get to Julie, uh, let's take a lap around the news. Uh, Mark, why don't you kick things off? So, yeah, I got a couple items around uh, one of my favorite slash least favorite topics of ransomware. Microsoft uh, released a couple of different sets of guidance. Um, so we've had the ransomware roadmap and kind of what to do first, next, and later out for uh, for a bit. And then we've gotten quite a few customer requests for, hey, how do I do this specifically in Azure? And then how do I do this in Azure and Microsoft 365? And so we've got a couple links there in the show notes that, that go through that and talk about the specific security features and how you can use them and configure them. Um, to, uh, to defend against ransomware attacks, make sure you got the right backups and protections and, and the like. Um, so a couple of useful links for, uh, for the folks there. I've got a couple of things that are cool to talk about, not just Sentinel. So there you go. Exciting times. So the first one is we announced the public preview of AKS support for dual stack IPvision 6 overlay networking, or um, it's the KubeNet uh, plugin, uh, which means, of course, um, if something's dual stack, it means that it can support both IPv4 and IPv6 addresses. So if you're um, actually looking at moving over to IPv6, which at some point all of us will probably have to do, let's face it, um, in your Kubernetes environment or in the rest of your environment, you can now do that for AKS as well. So go check it out. Secondly, uh, Azure, Azure Firewall Premium, uh, we definitely talked about that previously in the news, but it's now generally available in five new Azure regions. So that is US Gov Texas, US Gov Arizona, US Gov Virginia, China North 2, and China East 2. So if you're using any of those regions and you wanted to check out Azure Firewall Premium, you can now do that. And then, of course, moving on to my baby. Azure Sentinel, which I've clearly I could not go an episode without speaking about, but there's a couple of things that I definitely wanted to uh, to call out here. Uh, Defender for Office 365 events is now available in the Defender connector. So that means that um, if you're using Defender for Office 365 and you want to ingest the raw logs, not just the alerts, they're now available uh, in the new uh 365 Defender Connector. So definitely go and look at that. That's all these raw logs. We're, we're going to add more over time. Uh, it's something that customers have been really keen on. So if that's something you want to get into Sentinel, uh, you know, go for it. Um, Secondly, uh, template versions for scheduled analytics rules. Now, um, that's gone into public preview. So you may know that we have many, many templates for analytics rules. Now, uh, if we updated them and you were running an older version uh, previously, there was no way to tell. But now uh, there, will act there are actually template versions and versioning. So you can actually see whether or not you're running the most recent version or not, because, you know, sometimes we do need to update them. So they're the two things I wanted to talk about for Sentinel. And then last but not least, we've always got to talk about these things. Uh, the Forrester New Wave Extended Detection and Response, or XDR Providers, Q4, put Microsoft 
as like a leader. So that is cool. We're, we're up there um, with some, uh, there's only one other vendor up there. Um, so it's always nice to see that we're getting some wider analyst market industry recognition for, for what we do um, in XDR. So uh, again, we'll have a link in the show notes. So go and have a read for yourself. I've got to admit, I'm really glad that I was on mute when you said that we're all moving to IPv6. I mean, how many years have we been told that we're all moving to IPv6? Oh, I know. I, I know. I mean, it's, I feel like at some point <laughs> we'll have to. Sure. Okay. I remember get, getting training at least 15 years ago on IPv6, which was, of course, going to take over the world imminently at that point in time. Well, actually, so you know, one of the main guys behind IPv6 in Windows is William Dixon, and um, you know, William. I remember William explaining to me easily, like you say, Mark. Man, it's probably more than it's probably twenty years ago. You know, William saying that you know IPv6 is the you know, everyone's going to move to it. So I'm like, yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, and no, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, IPv6 offers so much more. Um, sort of quality of security compared to IPv4. Um, as we all know, you know, IPv4 was never really designed with security in mind, um, and IPv6 was. Anyway, so a few uh, little items caught my interest over the last couple of weeks. The first one is HD Insight now supports private link, and uh, it's generally available. I know you're probably sick of me saying this um, almost every every episode, but we're seeing more PaaS services, platform-as-a-service offerings at my, uh, within Azure um, move to using private endpoints. So this allows you to have communication between, say, another another service uh, over private IP addresses, and uh, that network traffic only travels over the Microsoft backbone. Uh, is never exposed on the public internet, which is again fantastic to see. Um, over the you know over the next uh, few months, I have no doubt we'll see many more products move to use private links. For static web apps, uh, we now have IP-based website protection, so you can limit by uh, by IP address ranges, so you can determine who you know who can come in uh, based on IP address. It's actually a little bit more than that, though. Um, we also have support for querying um, by service tag, so you can actually say this front end can only be um, you know can only communicate with this front end if the connection came from say front door, like as your front door. So you can use uh, as your service tags as well. Um, on the topic of static web apps, we now have built-in ability to have a function that is called. So you can do sort of role assignments and do other sorts of funky um, authentication and authorization. So that's another nice thing to see. Um, I used to work in IIS back in the day, so it just sounds like a glorified ISAPI filter to me. But anyway, another thing that I didn't, I did not know was coming down the pike, and that is that Azure Monitor Query Client Libraries has got a big update. They're actually brand spanking new libraries. Uh, the old libraries, actually, I'm going to put a link to the blog post. They s- sort of summarize it beautifully. It kind of didn't really fit very well um, the way the current libraries worked. So they basically you know, modernized and enhanced uh, the current libraries. You know, logging, querying, you know, querying logs is such an, in- an incredibly important part of security and compliance that that stuff, you know, has to be as easy as possible. So we've got these new libraries available. Um, they have uh, tight integration with Azure Active Directory, which the old code didn't, believe it or not, and also uh, required different packages if you were querying logs and metrics. So now we've got sort of this unified client library, and that's a, that's, that's a, a welcome change. And um, we also have uh, a new service tag discovery API. It's in GA as well, generally available. For any of you who are familiar with sort of querying service tags and getting the list of the latest service tags, the way most people did in the past was essentially 
parsing weekly JSON files that we provided to find out, you know, all the all the various service tags. Well, now there's actually an API for doing that. Um, so that way, you don't have to wait for us to publish these JSON files. Um, another thing that's now in GA is uh, the ability to integrate Key Vault with Azure Policy. Uh, I touched on this a few weeks ago because it was uh, in preview. Well, now it's actually GA. So this allows you to do things like, say, set a policy on, you know, if you've got a certificate, then you must get notification that it's going to expire, say, 90 days out. So you can actually force that policy. You can also force key types. So this is actually kind of interesting because you can have an Azure Key Vault and you have two versions of it, right? You can have the, the sort of the the normal SKU, and you can have the premium SKU. And the normal SKU stores everything in software, whereas in the premium SKU, keys can be, well, asymmetric keys, RSA and elliptic curve, can be stored in hardware. However, there was nothing stopping you, even though you had a, even though you had a hardware SKU, there was nothing stopping you from creating a software-backed key. Well, now you can support that. Now you can actually enforce that. So you can actually say, you know, even though you've got the premium SKU, the premium version, and keys can be stored in hardware, you can say you can only create RSA and elliptic curve keys that are stored in hardware. Um, so that's a really welcome addition because I remember the first customer that I worked with on this topic about three years ago, that was a real concern to them because they wanted to make sure that their keys were stored in hardware. Well, now you can enforce that through policy. There's policies for certificates, for keys, for secrets, and, and key vault policy. So this is a really fantastic um, addition to the Key Vault family. Uh, really excited to see this. We've now got more regions supporting private link with um, network security groups and with user-defined routes. Uh, we originally released this as a, a preview with a small number of um, regions. Well, now I've extended that re list of regions to about 19 discrete regions. And the last one, um, I'll be honest, I'm not a, a big expert on this, is actually, no, I do have one more thing after this. Uh, Azure Spring Cloud now supports end-to-end -end TLS. So all the way from ingress, all the way down to your applications can be done using um, HTTPS. And the last thing is, uh, which I'd totally forgotten about, so .NET 6 is about to be released. I believe it's going to be late November. One thing they've done in there, which I'm really happy to see, is they've now completely deprecated and marked as obsolete uh, the Rindal classes. For those of you who know your crypto history, so Rindal became AES, um, the Advanced Encryption Standard, but they're not the same thing because Rindal actually has different block block sizes, um, whereas AES only has one block size, which is 128 bits. I've I've seen people using code where they've had Rindal all over the place, and I'm like, why are you using Rindal? I don't get it. What you know, you should just be using AES. Well, the good news is in .NET six, um, uh, the Rindal support has finally been taken out to pasture. Hi everyone. This is Gladys, and for my first news, I wanted to talk about that Microsoft has been nominated for 2021 number one magic quadrant for industrial IoT platforms leader. The blog that Microsoft uh, published last week uh, was talking about our capabilities and how it addressed many of the IoT and OT requirements. I've been talking with several customers uh, lately, and I have realized that many organizations are not aware of all the investments that Microsoft has made in the IoT, OT areas. Uh, for example, uh, last year we bought CyberX uh, uh, to add um, to our cybersecurity uh, capabilities. 
So now that the White House has released the National Security Memorandum on improving cybersecurity for critical infrastructure control systems, there's many requirements that uh, many organizations need to adhere to. So for those organizations that require reporting, uh, such as sticks or taxi or maybe MISSP, standards, please review the Sentinel and uh, Defender for IoT integration. Uh, there's a lot of help uh, that we provide in there. For those that require other type of querying capability, please take a look at the Microsoft Graph and Defender for IoT APIs. Um, although there may be some workbooks uh, already in GitHub that may address uh, the reporting capabilities that you're looking for. Some of the highlights that uh, I want to mention from that blog is that uh, to enable security from ship to um, cloud, uh, you can use Azure Active Directory, Azure Keyboard, Azure IoT Hub, uh, and Device Provisioning Service, uh, Azure Sphere, Defender for IoT, and Sentinel. Microsoft solutions are open and interoperable. Um, we we are. Um, number one contributing uh, or contributor for uh, the open source software to the OPC Foundation, a founding member of the Digital Twin Consortium and open manufacturing platform, and also work in many industry-related bodies, including the Smart Manufacturing Institute, VDMA, the Open Group, and many others. So you could review this and, and see the list uh, by uh, looking at the blog. We also provide edge and cloud solution. So uh, we can provide both the productivity and intelligence of the cloud uh, to be distributed and run connected or disconnected uh, on the edge. And most important, this is not about just running only a Microsoft platform. Uh, we believe that a rich and diverse uh, partner ecosystem is uh, required in order to provide the specialized uh, uh, capabilities that the industrial IoT needs. This is a partner-led solution. To review the security capabilities provided by our IoT solution, please also review the blog that describes that Microsoft achieved the number one score for threat coverage visibility in the MITRE attack for ICS evaluation. I was presently surprised about our score and how we address the security requirement. Moving away from the IoT, uh, Microsoft Ignite is happening this week, uh, November 2nd through the 4th. If you missed it, you can still view the, all the recordings and announcements uh, by going to the Microsoft Ignite wo website. If you still have a capability of, of watching live uh, presentations from November 2nd to the 4th. Otherwise, please tune in on our next podcast when we will be summarizing the biggest news. All right, now that we have the news out of the way, uh, let's turn our attention to our guest. This week we have Julie Cosmano, and she's here from the Jupyter Notebooks team to talk about incident response and Jupyter Notebooks. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Would you care to take a moment and just introduce yourself to our listeners? 
Thank you, Michael. Hi, everyone. My name is Julia Cosmano. I am a program manager at Microsoft. I've been working in data solutions, and then eventually I somehow managed to run into Jupyter Notebooks, and it just amazed me in terms of how much it can help uh, people's life. So I'm very excited to talk about how notebook, Jupyter Notebooks can help uh, incident response scenarios. So thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for that. So I mean, my knowledge of Jupyter Notebooks is at best rudimentary. And to be honest with you, my experience has been sort of using Visual Studio Code and experimenting. Um, I, I would never say that I've actually built something of industrial industrial strength whatsoever. So could you like spend a couple of moments, explain what notebooks are, why are they even called Jupyter Notebooks? You know, what sort of the, the classic sort of use cases for uh, for these things? Traditionally, Jupyter Notebooks are intended to be for data scientists for a lot of the data science problems. So a few, uh, probably almost over a decade ago, maybe even a couple of decades ago, <laughs> this is all started um, before it was even Jupyter Notebooks. And there was a need for, for data science uh, or data scientists to be able to do this interactive documentation as well as coding so that way they can write comments they can write this code and then execute it in line and also get visualization out of it so I thought that was actually pretty interesting history behind it and essentially if you want to kind of know about Jupyter Notebooks essentially it's it's just an interactive way of uh, working with with your code as well your as well as your comments so you have this thing called code cells as well as text cells so text cells are usually for you know documentation uh, you know type of description and then in the code cell you can decide which language essentially you want to write it in and uh, quite a lot of the time it's it's called kernels in in, um, in in the IDE or in the interface. So if you choose different kernels, so for example, Python, which is the traditional ones, that's the traditional language that is being used with uh, Jupyter Notebooks. Um, and then, yeah, we can start doing data, data munging, data analysis, data visualization, which is super useful for data scientists, especially in the kind of exploratory phase, as well as when they build model too. So, that, so that's where, I guess, a bit of a background on, on Jupyter Notebooks. Hey, just while you talked about kernels, but they're not really kernels though, right? I mean, it's more of like a runtime environment. I mean, my background is operating system, so a kernel means a very specific thing to me. They're not really kernels, right? It's just like a runtime. You are right. So in this, in this case, Kernels is actually not, it's, it's actually runtime. It's not the same as the kind of OS kernels, but it is usually in the label when you see it, it's called kernels. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so I got a, a quick question for you. And, um, like, how does, because we hear a lot about notebooks and runbooks and playbooks and all sorts of different things. Like, how is this different than, say, the, um, the SOAR capabilities in Azure Sentinel that sort of automates and orchestrates, you know, uh, you know, hey, send a, a message to a chat in uh, in Teams or Slack or whatever, or you know, tell Palo Alto firewalls to block an IP. Like, how is this different from that? Is this purely for data analytics sort of work? No, it's not for it's not for uh, data analytics sort of world. Um, Let's see if I can help answer this. My knowledge on Azure Sentinel is a little bit limited, so uh, you can feel free to chime in here as well. So essentially, 
when we first thought about incident response scenario, we noticed that a lot of the time, uh, there's the engineers, so lifeset engineers or site reliability engineers spent quite a little bit of time in terms of diagnosing what's going on. And we noticed that there's a lot of collaboration in terms of, especially if you look at the incident response system, a lot of folks actually send their queries back and forth with the results as well. Because sometimes, you know, you don't finish the incident in just the one shift. Sometimes you actually have to pull in other people. Sometimes your shift spills over, so you have to hand it off to another person. So there is that sense of, hey, here's my code. Here's my, is the query. This is the state at the time that I was diagnosing it. It's not quite finished yet. And then we also know that from, since it, you know, Jupyter Notebooks allows you to write code, it also allows you to write mitigation, technically speaking. So, which you can actually do today. So from that perspective, I would say it has been most useful for analyzing and for collaborating with other people, but definitely uh, doable or usable as well for, uh, for mitigation. Okay, so this is, this is something that like, you know, one analyst would, you know, as they're going through and doing their investigation process and learning things and querying for things, and of course, wanting to rerun that query later, this is a way to sort of capture that in a really good, repeatable way. They could just simply hand off to the next shift or, or the next person or the next tier up or what have you. Correct. Yeah, that's that's the ad hoc sort of flow, I suppose. Now, one thing that is kind of interesting about Jupyter Notebooks, you know, when I first kind of got into this project, I was thinking, wow, there's kind of a lot of manual sort of process, but incident response sometimes can definitely help from some kind of automation. So an example could be, hey, my Azure SQL database is running a little bit slow. I'm not sure what's going on. So I'm going to raise an incident uh, to whoever, like for example, to the DBA. And instead of the DBA picking it up, and thinking, okay, which Jupyter Notebook or which script should I run? Instead of doing that, wouldn't it be nice if you can schedule the notebook that you normally run manually as well as you know running automatically? So essentially in the incident response as part of the incident response itself, you can pre-execute the notebooks so that when a DBA gets assigned, they just go, oh, here we go. This is all the pre-run or pre-executed diagnostic notebook. And now I know what to do next. So you can do something really fancy around that. And there is a demo that I have created uh, using Azure Serverless Architecture to kind of essentially pick up this uh, incident response. I was using Azure Logic Apps there and a bit of Azure Automation. And because Jupyter Notebooks can be called from CLI uh, or as a CLI, um, then it makes it easier for uh, for people to be able to automate Jupyter Notebook execution using their favorite sort of language. I think the option right now that is available is Python and PowerShell. So those two are obviously very common languages. Um, so that's what makes it easier in terms of automation. You mentioned two words there that really piqued my interest. The first is serverless and the second one is execution. So where do these things run and who pays? I mean, who pays for this? I mean, you know, if you've got a very complex notebook, um, like you gave the example before of a you know, SQL database that's running slowly, yeah, there's probably some work going to be done there, you know, querying system tables, perhaps doing all sorts of funky SQL stuff. Where is the compute done and who, uh, who covers that? 
Great question. Okay, so uh, let's take that example that you mentioned um, or that we talked about, uh, which is the Azure SQL one. So with Azure SQL instance as an example, you can, or Azure SQL database even, you can write the logs to a storage or Azure monitor logs. So you have two options there. So if you decide to write it to, say, for example, Azure Blob Storage, then you can write your Jupyter Notebook such a way that it will read from the Blob Storage. So obviously, there is some cost on the Blob Storage. You could also write to Azure Monitor Logs, which allows you to query using KQL language uh, against the Azure Monitor Logs workspace or Log Analytics workspace. So, um, and obviously that incurs some cost as well on the Azure Monitor Logs, but um, both of them uh, essentially are just the storage side of it, um, just for the logging perspective. Now from the compute side, it, obviously if you are using Azure Automation, then there is some cost to Azure Automation, but it, it actually is reasonably cheap. If I remember correctly, I was scheduling this to run maybe once or twice a day, uh, for for a month or so, and the bill was actually pretty reasonable. It was like maybe less than ten dollars. It's just because the notebook wasn't running too long. It was pretty fast. Um, yeah, so it was really good to kind of just try it out and test it. <laughs> so, Julie, uh, what tools would would one use to develop notebooks if if they were wanting to do that? Because I mean, we've got Azure Data Studio plenty of others. Um, so where would somebody start if they were wanting to start off their notebooks journey? Yeah, great question, Sarah. I would recommend using Azure Data Studio if you're coming from the data sort of world, so the database sort of world, um, mainly because Azure Data Studio has this kind of rich support for all the uh, data, I suppose the data services um, that is part of Azure, including SQL Server, by the way. So it actually supports SQL language, a SQL kernel uh, natively, as well as KQL. So that makes it easier for you to develop without knowing much of Python. Actually, this is a bit of a funny story here. Um, a few years ago, I, I came from the R background and I was thinking, wow, I have to learn another language. I have to learn Python, you know, so many languages to learn, right? So I decided, okay, I guess it's time to kind of start learning about Python. And I found out that Azure Data Studio with you know Jupyter Notebook actually installs you know Python in the background. So when I for me to learn Python was super easy. And I actually used Jupyter Notebook to learn Python. Sorry, I digressed. So yeah, for Azure Data, uh, sorry, for uh, from data professionals perspective, use Azure Data Studio. There's a lot of improvements coming um, in, in that space in the past year or so, and I'm sure there'll be more coming soon, uh, especially with the .NET interactive sort of world. And uh, we Azure Data Studio team actually partners up quite a lot with VS Code team as well. And so what happens is we also have a strong support in strong support of Jupyter Notebooks in VS Code. So if you're coming from sort of software engineering world or developer sort of world, uh, check out VS Code because if that's where you live, you know, uh, give it a go there. Yeah, that's where I live. I live in Visual Studio Code. And uh, one day I saw this thing pop up. I said, oh, Jupyter Notebooks are available. And I'm like, oh, fantastic. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was really simple to get it up and running. I was, next thing I was writing a whole bunch of, um, I, was, I decided to do C Sharp, a whole bunch of C Sharp code with visualizations, the whole nine yards. It was, uh, it was really, really simple. It was great to see it. So one thing that Mark mentioned before was the first shift can do some work and then hand off a 
you know, essentially a document or something, an artifact, to the next shift for further analysis, and I'm maybe just paraphrasing things. Does that mean that, that you know, if, if I do a query or I get some sensitive data, that sensitive data could in theory be in the actual notebook itself? Do I, is that something I have to be cognizant of? Like what sensitivity of the data could find its, well into the no, its way into the notebook? Yeah, definitely something you want to con- consider for sure. Uh, so under the hood, the IPYNP file, which is the file extension uh, for notebooks, uh, under the hood, it's actually JSON files. So if you run a query, say, for example, select statement, or you maybe have some data frame that you print out, then obviously it's going to be captured as part of the JSON file, the IPYNB file. So you want to make sure that if there is some sensitive data, do clear it up before. So you can clear it up at the cell level or clear up all uh, you know, from the entire notebook. So that's one thing that I would recommend to watch out for. And the other thing that we've also done in terms of automation, so because we were talking about automation before, there are two kinds of automation. One is the pre-execution side of it, but you can do some fancy things as well as you check in your Jupyter notebooks, or even if you want to save your notebooks into um, into the incident response system. For example, you can do something like, hey, we detected that the result set is still stored in uh, in your notebook that you're attaching or that you're checking into version control. So please do not, uh, so this, you know, this attachment or this uh, check-in is going to fail. In fact, that's one of the things that we do um, in one of our teams is that anybody who's actually checking in their Jupyter notebooks to source control, if it contains some result set, we usually give them a warning first, like asking, I usually want to check this in because it has some data. And sometimes it's okay because it's just example data, you know, using AdventureWorks or Contoso, et cetera. But in some cases, it has kind of saved us quite a bit of time <laughs> to clean up and, and also, um, you know, uh, from compliance perspective, it's it's important. So it helps us, uh, you know, stay compliant. So moving on to uh, what we uh, kind of headlined for this this episode, tell us about how you can use notebooks for incident response. Uh, you know that um, I love my Sentinel and that we use it, uh, notebooks and Sentinel, but you, um, I'd love to hear more from your perspective about what you can do with with notebooks in that space. What I love about Jupyter Notebooks is that it gives you that flexibility because as a developer, you can choose which language you want to use and definitely the, the top you know popular languages like Python, C-sharp, PowerShell, SQL, um, they are supported. So, you know, come up with something creative, you'd be able to use Jupyter Notebooks to kind of detect issues from, you know, all the way from, hey, there is a database, you know, slow performance issues all the way to, hey, there is um, th- there is an issue with with security or maybe with logins as well. So um, anything is anything is possible. I like it when you say anything is possible. Um, but how would you? Because uh, uh, I agree with you. There's lots of different things you can do. But how would uh, a how would you actually trigger a notebook for incident response? Would People have to, uh, would they need to do anything special to get a notebook up and running if they had an incident 
Yep, great question. So in the earlier example that I had uh, before, I was using Azure. So essentially, you could use something like Azure Automation and Azure Logic Apps. So Azure Logic Apps is the one that is going to kind of detect, hey, there is something happening. So it, it's essentially your listener and it will start kicking off uh, maybe an Azure Automation or Azure Function that essentially is the wrapper to the notebook. So what I meant by a wrapper is that's the actual caller of the notebook. I do have a, a video on this, and I'll be happy to share that so you can uh, you can see how it all works when when it's all stitched up together. So I had a question, kind of channeling my inner SOC manager, SOC director. Is this is this something I could use as a way to sort of capture institutional knowledge from my experienced investigators and kind of help make it more repeatable for some of the more junior uh, folks? Is it like something I could use as a training tool along those lines? That's our one of our goals, actually, when we're starting this. We onboarded our team at the time onboarded a lot of uh, a lot of junior folks who are actually learning a lot of things about Azure and Azure services. So we thought, okay, so they also have to be or starting, you know, they have to be trained to be on call as well. So we figured out there, there must be a better way than just writing troubleshooting guides or playbook, runbooks in a static format like OneNote as an example. What if we can just transfer this knowledge into, into something that is executable as well? And, and that's how it all started with Jupyter Notebooks. So definitely training is one of the key benefits of Jupyter Notebooks. A lot of the time, whenever I do sessions to, um, uh, to explain about some concepts or to explain about Azure SQL and others, I usually just pull up Jupyter Notebooks. So as a presenter, you can show, hey, this is one that I have uh, prepared earlier because Jupyter Notebooks can save the results, right? In case, you know, something goes wrong, you know, the demo gods. Um, so you can show this Jupyter Notebook with all the results pre-executed, or you can say, okay, let me just run uh, show you how it works and you know explain and it makes like demo demoing things so much easier you don't have to run for scripts you don't have to run for oh, what was the explanation at the time and you can even share this with other people in fact if you check in Jupyter Notebooks on GitHub public repo as an example um, we do that for some of the SQL server as well as Azure SQL troubleshooting guides uh, you can publish the Jupyter Notebooks on GitHub and folks who might not have Jupyter Notebook installed yet, as in the uh, the viewers or the IDE like Azure Data Studio VS Code, you can just view the notebook uh, uh, directly from, uh, from GitHub because it does support just the Jupyter Notebook viewer. So, yeah. So that's what makes it, um, what I would say, versatile, flexible. I want to I want to sum up Jupyter what I think about Jupyter notebooks and tell me if I'm wrong, um, which wouldn't be the first time. The way I look at Jupyter notebooks uh, and incident response is ultimately you can pull in data from all different sources, whatever that is, from you know Azure Monitor log, you know log analytics, from SQL, from Synapse, from Cosmos DB, from storage accounts, and then you can have some custom code that could be Python, PowerShell, you know C sharp, um, SQL, um, Custo queries, depending on the on the tool, and then present that information in a form that then can be analyzed and digested by essentially by a human being. Is that kind of a somewhat simple and naive view of everything that we've just talked about? Yep, that's that's it. And one more thing just to kind of get a little bit more, I guess, philosophical here. There, there are two things that when we looked at 
troubleshooting guides or incident response and how it relates to Jupyter Notebooks. There are two main problems that we're really trying to solve or the, the reasoning behind it. The first one is we do really believe that all of this, I suppose this kind of knowledge or troubleshooting guides essentially, it should be created once and reuse, be reusable. So create once, hopefully use everywhere. Either you want to use it manually, you want to use it in an automated fashion. It should be doable. It should be uh, possible to be reused as many times as you can. So that's one thing. And another thing that is quite forgotten, especially when we're thinking about troubleshooting guides, is that quite often the, the details are put into, say, maybe Wiki or OneNote where it's static, and nobody actually really does enough checking to make sure that the content is still accurate and that it actually would solve problems. So the idea here with using Jupyter Notebook as the basis for uh, for troubleshooting guides, uh, for incident response, is that you're treating these troubleshooting guides as if they are software artifacts, and Jupyter Notebooks allow you to do that. Because first of all, you can execute manually, you can uh, you can automate it. That means you can also do uh, automated testing as well. So imagine if you have a product that have frequent releases, imagine if those releases are accompanied with troubleshooting guides that can be run at the same time as the code check-in or the build as part of the automated testing, right? Yeah, this is really cool. I can also imagine this would be, you know, notebooks would be really cool for doing correlation of different data sources, right? Because you would actually build in the logic of the correlation into the code, which would be, uh, be kind of nice. Uh, this is fantastic. This is really great technology. I'm... Uh, Again, my my exposure to it has been primarily through Visual Studio Code, um, and I think I'll be spending a little bit more time just just experimenting. You know, I think it's uh, it's one of those examples of where it's one of those technology that you should you should kind of understand, or at least have a passing knowledge. You know, at least be able to do the elevator pitch for uh, for for the technology before you go, Julie. So, one thing we always ask our um, our guests is if you had one thought to leave our listeners with, uh, what would it be? I would say one thing that I want to share for sure, uh, try out Azure Data Studio, aka.ms forward slash get Azure Data Studio. It's super helpful for data professionals out there. And other than that, I would quote Brene Brown's uh, Stay Awkward, Brave and Kind. Thank you so much for turning up this week, Julia. I really appreciate it. I know you're very busy. Uh, I learned a ton this uh, this podcast. Um, I always learn something on every podcast, but this one was... Uh, yeah, there's a lot that I, I realized I didn't know. So again, thank you so much for turning up. Um, to all our listeners out there, uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.